Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Professor Snyder, I've seen that you've said before that the modern healthcare system is broken and a revolution is long overdue. I was hoping you could tell me what you mean by that. Why is it broken and what changes do you hope this this overdue revolution is going to bring? Oh, it's broken a lot of different ways. First of all, in the US, it's sick care and not healthcare. And I think that's true around the world as well, meaning we tend to treat people when they're ill as opposed to keeping them healthy. And so we need a whole paradigm shift there. And even when they're healthy, if you think about how we run our healthcare system, people typically get in a car or some other form of transport, go to a doctor's office, and it's usually at a very inconvenient time. There's never a convenient time to go to a doctor's office. And when you arrive at that doctor's office, it looks pretty much the same as it's done the last 40 years, meaning there has been very little improvement, few new gizmos, but for the most part, it's the same. And then, um, you know, from there, they'll draw a lot of blood and make a few other measurements. And from all of this, they, they still measure very, very few things. And then the biggest problem is they'll make a decision about your health based on population averages, meaning that, you know, they'll, they'll treat you as though you're the, the average of the population. And sometimes that's okay, but often that's not okay. Meaning if you're, and a good example I like to use is if you're temperature, when you put a thermometer in your mouth, you've been told since you're little, it's 90.6, but it actually turns out there's a spread. And for some people, it's, you know, 94.6. That's actually what's called the 25th quartile. Uh, And if you're at that temperature and they measure you at 90.6, they'll tell you you're healthy. But if you're at four degrees over your baseline, I guarantee you're not healthy. So that's a big stick of ours. Know what your individual measurements are so you can see a shift. And is that probably the biggest flaw or fundamental issue with the healthcare system at the moment is that the medical professionals are looking at one number. They're not looking at what that number is in relation to the individual's baseline. It's all about that difference from what it normally is. That's what I am. Yeah, we think that's one of the biggest problems out there. Exactly. That people, even if those old numbers are sitting in your medical record, nobody looks at them. They look at what looks like today when you had your, you know, you get your measurement and they'll evaluate based on that. But your trend could be heading in a very, very poor direction. And we've had examples of that. So we've been following 100 people for quite some time. And we had one person, he was in the normal range for his liver enzyme, and then uh, it shifted up. Like it was doubled, actually, but it was still in the so-called normal range. And wouldn't you know it, uh, so he asked me what's going on. Nobody ever flagged it to him. And he asked me, and I said, why don't you go get another measurement? That doesn't look good to me. (laughs) And sure, so he did a week later, and wouldn't you know it, uh, he went out of the normal range. And if he was following the normal healthcare system, you know, he probably wouldn't have gotten checked up for two years later. And by then, who knows? So so we like the idea of looking for these shifts so that you can basically tell when things are off. So the revolution you've spoken of, what 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 needs to happen? And I guess more importantly, how likely is it to happen, the changes you want to see? 
Well, I think it'll be stepwise. So, so there's many, many things. One is I like the idea of getting a lot of measurements at home, the so-called remote measurement. And we do this in two ways. We do it with wearables and we can get into that. So uh, I'm wearing my four smartwatches, these hearing aids I have, they are for hearing, but they also measure other things. I have a glucose monitor, so on and so forth. So um, so we think this remote monitoring is super, super powerful because it's following you 24-7. You can see really what's going on, and we should talk a little bit about the glucose monitoring because that's a big deal. Uh, and then more recently, we had a paper out where you can do little pricks of blood and collect them at home and mail them in. And, and in the lab, we'll measure 2,200 molecules, many of which are pretty key for your health. Uh, we, we formed a company around this called YOLO that actually measures the commercial, and it'll measure 500 metabolites that, again, are fairly important for your health. So we like the idea that for a lot of routine measurements, you could actually me- you know do it at home, get some pretty important information, and then therefore do it more frequently. These tests should become really very, very cheap. Um, yeah, so, so I guess there's many aspects of change. One is how often you get measured and making it convenient so people do get measured often. We think measuring a lot more is a big deal. Just getting 15 things like they measure now, well, they may catch some things and may miss others. Um, and if I could back up a little bit, you know, I think one of the biggest things we've done is that we we started profiling people as a pilot study, over 100 people, 109 people, where we'll we'll do deep data dives on them, measure all kinds of things, their blood, their urine, as many molecules. We sequence their DNA so we can make risk prediction and so on and so forth. And at the end of the, and we measure them every three months. And just from the first three and a half years, half the people, so 49 major health discoveries came out of that. So some people had two, so I think it was 47. So 47, nearly half the people learned something pretty important about their health. Like we caught early lymphoma, we caught uh, two people with serious heart issues, we caught two cases of a precancer. Um, and so we think this deep data dive gives you a much, much clearer picture of your health. And then if you do a longitudinally, you can track it. So those are the key, key features we think. Big data, um, you know, longitudinal tracking, and then ultimately make it very convenient for people to do it remotely. You said that the medical profession hasn't changed for decades, for 40 years, and that we're currently waiting too long and being too passive. For We're waiting for an illness to present itself before we even take that first step. How do you see that the integration of technology, health, big data, moving towards this personalized healthcare model, what are the big opportunities and the immediate opportunities you think we can grasp within the next, say, three to five years? But on the flip side, what are the big obstacles remaining to be overcome that that are still the blockers to this kind of rollout that could have profound changes on an individual and society? Yeah, great question. The problem is the biggest obstacle is who pays. At least in the U.S., uh, no one pays to keep you healthy. The system is not incentivized that way. You, they physicians typically get paid when people go see them, and that people usually go see them when they're ill. So we need a reward system for getting people to stay healthy. So imagine you get a discount on your insurance if you walk your ten thousand steps. Here's another case where wearables are powerful. Uh, you know, other things. I think you should get a discount if you get your DNA sequence because you can make predictions about your health and track those things better. Um, so we think that, you know, you could you can figure out ways to incentivize the system to keep people healthy, and then we would be practicing, you know, true health care and not sick care. 
And just how far away are we from some of those breakthroughs? I'm trying to get a sense of just how big the obstacles are. Yeah, well, at some level, so I mean, here's how we're doing this now. We've we so I'm an academic. We do all these things in a lab and and show that it works. And then we spin off companies that come from this. So as an example, we have a company called QBio that does a deep data dive on people. And a lot of people have signed up for it, but they have to pay out of pocket. Again, because the system doesn't do it. I'll come back to that in a second. Same thing for this test I mentioned where you get the little prick of blood and you mail it in and you know we give you back a report. Same thing, you pay out of pocket for that. We have another one called January AI that does continuous glucose monitoring. Uh, and that stuff is so, so powerful following your glucose because you can see it turns out if we back up, I'll digress a little bit. Um, so it turns out, um, you know, diabetes is a rampant problem. Nine percent of the U.S. is diabetic, 33 percent are pre-diabetic. And, and it turns out um, that means you have high glucose and, and different people it turns out react to different foods differently. So some people will have elevated glucose after eating a banana. Other people, it's pasta. Other people, it's potatoes. Other people, it's bread. We're all different. And you can measure that with these glucose monitors. Very, very powerful. And so you can see what food spiked you. And, and you know, that particular company has a big food database. So they can make food recommendations. Oh, you like this and it spikes you. Well, eat that instead. So you can do things that, uh, and even if you just wear one of these things we've shown, it's very, very eye-opening. People will will basically watch what they eat just by wearing one of these monitors. They're, they're super powerful. So I think we can do some behavioral modifications like that by you know visualizing what's going on in real time with your health. Um, same thing, it turns out, for um, uh, some of the wearables. We can show when people are getting infectious disease from a simple smartwatch. So some of this you can do, we think, in real time by just showing people directly their health data. Um, but other cases, we, we do need to rearrange the financial structure, and that's not trivial. I think it can get implemented in these single-payer systems like Europe is often single-payer, Canada, places like that. The U.S., it's so fragmented, it's hard. Nobody wants to, people change their providers every 18 months. So nobody really wants to put a lot of money into you, and 18 months later, you're going to be with somebody else. So we, we need new structures. In many countries, the US being the prime example, there are no financial incentives to make people healthier or you know to make healthcare cheaper, right? For a lot of these companies, big pharma, it's in their interest to have sick, fat, tired, depressed people because it's a cash cow for months, years, decades. How are we going to square the circle between the societal need for us to take better care of each other and to get fitter and happier and improve that quality of life? with tackling these huge conglomerations who have got uh, the opposite interest at their heart. Yeah, well, I don't know if per se a farmer's trying to make keep people ill, <laughs> but it's true they're not incentivized to, um, you know, they want to give their pills to everybody who's potentially <laughs> use, who will react positively to them. Um, I, I think the issue is so, but how to get it possible, how to get this financial incentive aligned is a big deal. I think um, your employer should be one, especially big employment firms. Many of them do offer wellness programs now, um, which is a good thing. I think it's in their best interest to keep their workers healthy because that makes them more productive. So I, I think that's a good one. Stanford certainly does it where I am. Um, 
Yeah. And then I think your insurance company should give you discounts for people who block their 10,000 steps or your provider uh, every day because that should keep you healthier and you can track that sort of stuff. And there's ways to tell people are cheating. If you throw your watch into your washing machine, we'll know that <laughs> the GPS won't be flying around. So so I think, you know, putting it on a dog, I think we can still tell that one too. Um, yeah. So, so um Bottom line is, I, I think we need to. So employers are one one way, and providers another way. I, I think stimulating people themselves just a lot more awareness that you know what they're eating. Like I said, some of these behavioral things with the glucose monitoring, it's just very very eye opening. Um, and I think if we can figure out ways, uh, I think there's really two ways that motivate people: money and family. So I mentioned a lot of financial ones, but I think family is another good way of getting the family involved. So. People say, hey, did you run your 10,000, <laughs> you walked your 10,000 steps a day, this sort of thing. So so I think we need as many, uh, um, you know, things there as possible. And I do think these app-based systems that will be powerful because, you know, that is the biggest problem is people say, oh, you bring in health coaches and things like that. Well, that doesn't scale very well, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think you really, we, we really need app-based methods to do this stuff. Do you feel that there are some countries or regions of the world that are more suited to moving away from this slow, expensive, reactive healthcare model to a personalized, proactive model? I'm thinking particularly being in the UK of the NHS, where there might be a more suitable environment for some of these personalized medicine and healthcare breakthroughs to happen first before maybe trickling uh, to, to other systems where maybe it's insurance-based or, or it's paid for medical service. Is that something that you think about in terms of where can we, as someone who's so invested in personalized healthcare, where do you think are the, the great white hopes of where this where this tipping point is going to come from? Yeah, I think NHS uh, in the UK is a good one. I think the Canadian system tends to be pretty single payer as well. So again, and I think there are in the UK, they also are really getting a lot of awareness around genome sequencing. It's still, it's mostly for solving diseases, but I think they're, Talking about bringing it in, and and um, there there are a few pockets here, like there's something called Geisinger that had people get their parts of their their DNA sequence for for making risk prediction. So I think there a biggie is showing utility. I, if you can show, hate to say it, if you can show you save money in the U.S., that would help too. And and so I could see this rolling out in certain sectors. So for example, people at risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, those would be good ones to do this deep data profiling, longitudinal, get your genome sequenced uh, kind of thing. Uh, and the reason they would be a good group is because if somebody gets a you know heart attack or what have you, they went up on long-term disability. It's super, super expensive. So if you can, that might be a way to start, you see, to get <laughs> um, this rolling here to get it in. And then suddenly you realize that that does save money, which I, I think there's been some economic modeling that big data approaches around cardiovascular disease and people at risk would actually save money. So I think that's not a bad way to start it. I think there's other ways to think about this too. Like I was mentioning before, the wearables are very, very powerful. Um, they're very inexpensive, relatively speaking. I mean, expensive ones here, probably are three, 400 bucks. Uh, and, you know, in the future, even a, even a $50 smartwatch can tell a lot, follows your resting heart rate, tells you when you're getting ill early. So I think that we could spread out to everybody now, quite frankly. Can you imagine putting, just starting a program, you're an insurance company or a provider, let's put a smartwatch on the whole UK population. Very, very doable and, and not 
unreasonable, right? Put a, we'll give you a fifty dollars to get a smartwatch for everybody in in the UK, uh, and if you want to upgrade it to a hundred dollar one, put in your own fifty. Yeah. Yeah, very doable. I I'd be curious to see what kind of health benefits that has by doing. But then you, yeah. But now keep it wearing the watch <laughs> could be a little tricky. But uh, we'll figure out ways around that. I want to get into some of the kind of blue sky futuristic hopes that you've got in terms of personalized medicine. But before we get to that, I think a lot of people would be very surprised by some of the research that's come out of your lab, just in terms of efficacy around current drugs. In that most drugs don't work for most people it's always kind of for the average is that going to be the first and maybe the most important step in the path towards a true personalized system is that we can identify the right drugs for the right people at the right time based on their their genome or or or, or other factors that we're, we're getting because at the moment the system is it's, it feels like a bit of a lottery whether or not uh, an existing drug for a certain illness is going to work for you or not yeah, I mean, it is true right now. This is on the treatment side. It is trial and error. And, you know, oh, that didn't work. Increase the dose or switch to another drug. And and unfortunately, I think we're still stuck with that for a while. Now, I think that the, the area where that could shift earliest might be uh, diabetes, believe it or not, because there are many forms of diabetes and people react differently to different drugs. And there, I think we could try and figure out what the subtypes of, of diabetes are, the subclasses, if you will. So I think that's a very doable thing. And I'm a good example. So I'm a type 2 diabetic. It was actually predicted from my genome. And I it, it first skyrocketed. My glucose went out of control after a nasty viral infection. I mean, to the point I was diabetic. And I did all kinds of modifications to bring it back under control. And it actually came back again. And we, you know, uh, it, I took the obvious drug, it's called metformin that you do for this, and I was a non-responder. But in the end, when we figured out what was wrong with me, I, my cells respond to insulin, I make insulin just fine, but I actually, I don't release it from the pancreas. And there's a drug for that, that worked great. So the point is that you know, I'm a classic case, and we could have figured this all out for the get-go. It took years to figure that out, quite frankly, and then we should have just figured it out, you know, in a week, we could have, but the system's not set up for that. So I think that's a good one. By knowing the different subtype of diabetes you are, we can get you the right drug right from the get-go. And I think that would be very, very powerful. I think that'll be true in other areas. Now, it's not quite as well stratified for some of these other areas. Like a lot of the drugs that people take, they're for for mental health, for depression, things like this. And, and there we still don't know enough to say, what the right drug is for you versus someone else. So that it is still, so many areas we're still stuck in this trial and error, I guess I'm saying. Uh, I think we can get the dosing better and the side effects better figured out from say your DNA sequence. And believe it or not, there's a lot of data around that one. But um, as far as, you know, how, which drugs are gonna make you respond best for mental health, it's, that's still not so easy to figure out. We need more, that's where we need more data. In terms of preventative, healthcare and, and medicine. I've read that you've talked about a, a world in which you're tested your genome sequence before birth, and then all of risk factors can be identified, which means then you're always essentially on the front foot in terms of looking for potential risks, identifying them very, very early, and then offering treatment. In this kind of utopian view of, of amazing preventative healthcare, it seems ideal, but there's obviously a huge amount of ethical considerations around consent, privacy, data, 
is that is it realistic is my question are we ever going to get to a point where your vision of of how all this technology can solve so many needless deaths essentially are we going to ever get there or they're going to be too is there too much red tape to to prevent it oh i think this one's totally achievable this one uh even better than the treatment side at least for right now now treatment i'm quite confident we'll get there uh so i this is our big theme keep people healthy and i think um, it'll probably roll out in various forms. I mentioned the wearables and the smartwatches. Those are powerful health monitors. Um, they really can tell when you're getting ill. And I, I actually first figured out, for example, my Lyme disease of all things from a smartwatch and something called a pulse ox that measured blood oxygen. Just from simple measurements, I saw things were off. Uh, and then I, the timing was such, it was two weeks after I had been a Lyme infested area that I sort of guessed what was going on. And, uh, and actually, the story is an interesting one because the doctor pulled blood from me, uh, said my my immune cells were up, uh, wanted to give me penicillin. And I said, no, I need doxycycline, which is what you take for Lyme. And and uh, that cleared it up. Uh, but it was tense. He didn't like me uh, making a suggestion. The classic case, why well, you have to take your health in your own hands. Uh, so it cleared it up. And and I was indeed Lyme positive. We got tested. And, and so... Um, and we've gone on show now for respiratory viruses, including COVID, we can actually detect, detect it before symptoms. See, that's the key in all this. So if you're doing this monitoring and all these health discoveries I mentioned earlier, we can actually catch that before people get symptoms. The same is true for infectious disease. Not perfect. It's 80% of the time, but still it's better than nothing. Uh, your, heart rate, your resting heart rate jumps up. We can do that today, quite frankly. And I think that will roll into our health system pretty soon. So people have actually signed up for a study and some others who randomly come up to me have said, yeah, you know, I, I noticed my heart rate jumped up and, and you know, I'm thankful So we have an alerting system that said, yeah, I know I checked and sure enough, uh, um, yeah, I had these, uh, we have a red alerts if your heart rate's jumping up abnormally. And, and um, by the way, you can all sign up for it. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was pretty cool that, and and so someone just came up to me last week with that experience and said, yeah, he was at this party. Um, you know, most people weren't wearing masks. He was, and three days later, he noticed he's getting these red alerts. <laughs> he was in our study. And he didn't feel anything just yet. He he then tested after a few days, was negative, but two days after that came down positive. So we gave him red alerts ahead of time, and he said it was pretty amazing. And he, and he also noticed because uh, his resting heart rate was up, and the same was true for me. So your heart. So we think those you can do with wearables some pretty powerful health monitoring now. So I suspect that'll move into the healthcare system sooner. Other stuff like the glucose, I'd like to see that move. And I think that can move in pretty soon too, this glucose monitoring, because they're they're over the counter in Europe. I'm pretty sure it's true in the UK. You can get these continuous glucose monitoring, you know, in in a store, whereas in the US you still need a doctor to prescribe them. But they're very, very eye-opening. I guarantee if you wear one of these things, you'll never be the same. You're you're the way you eat will differ. You'll see what spikes you. And you'll avoid it. So that stuff can move in quickly. Some of the deep data dive stuff, we're going to have to show it has utility. We have to, you know, people say, oh, that's great. You are you can measure, you know, 500 things by this drop at home test. And, and um, you know, so what? Does it really help people? Does it really work? And so we need to roll out proper studies. I think the believers will do it because, you know, they're motivated to do it. But I, if we can show utility, 
then I think uh, it can fit into your national healthcare system. Imagine everyone does it. And I hate to say it, if we show it saves money, then it'll go in really, really fast. <laughs> it's not a case that you're worried by any kind of ethical considerations around consent, especially if we start testing you know, children to get a full profile of them moving forward. I guess that's one consideration. Is cost going to be a problem or can so much of this be done with a, a $50 smartwatch? Because with any new technology that could radically transform someone's quality of life and someone's health, I guess there's the... The, the imperative need to make sure that it's accessible to all, regardless of socioeconomic class or health history or any other potential reasons that may prevent somebody from gaining access to this technology. Are you convinced, uh, and you seem very, very positive about it, that all of these issues I've mentioned are very, very easy to to navigate and, and move around so that everyone can access this? Yeah, good question. I think, so you hit several points. Let's start with the cost one. So the answer is, I think, the wearable stuff, the glucose monitoring is relatively inexpensive and will get cheaper. So I think the cost problem for those two areas will, will be you know, easily solved and doable. And quite frankly, I think uh, if you look at how much money you're putting in the healthcare system now, 50 bucks is background noise. I mean, you're really... So I think some of the stuff is super, super easy. Um, and the, But the other stuff like, the, like we do, the deep data ties with all the molecular measurements, that's expensive. And so... As we get it cheaper, as we show utility, parts of it will roll out bit at a time, I see. At some point, I'm a believer, believe it or not, we will be getting whole body scans twice a year, uh, MRIs, whole body MRIs. And and But why wouldn't you do it now? A, it's expensive. B, you know, it's inconvenient. You have to go to a place where this happens and it takes an hour and 40 minutes to get a scan. Well, one of my companies, QBio, can do it in 40 minutes. And pretty soon, it'll be 15 minutes, we believe. And so I could imagine a world in which you go do this on your way to the drugstore. And, uh, you know, you stop in at the drugstore, get your whole body MRI. Maybe maybe it starts out once a year. I don't know what the number will be. Uh, and then you get a draw some blood and get a whole bunch of measurements. I, I think that can be done fairly inexpensively in the future. Now, that is further away. But the wearable stuff and the CGM, glucose monitoring, that's here now. On the issue about privacy, you know, I, I'll be an outlier here. <laughs> Um, I say get over it. Um, it's not going to be that private, um, but we'll do it anyway because it's good for us. So the analogy I like to use is your credit card. We all have credit cards because nobody wants to walk around bags of cash. That's not very convenient. So it's it's a useful way to do things. And and I'll tell you, we all have credit cards and there's a lot of personal, a lot of private stuff on a credit card probably that's more important or more concerning uh, then, you know, your health information. Uh, and I'm a good example. I have two petabytes of data, two petabytes of data out there in public, including my genome sequence that anyone can access and work with. Uh, we do it for scientific reasons, but, um, and I've never been abused by it and I don't expect to be. Now you might say, well, he's a tenured professor, so he can get away with that. But um, yeah, we do need laws to prevent discrimination that I do believe but and and I think any wealthy society of which I consider most of the Western world to be fall into that category, we we owe it to our citizens to keep them healthy, and have some level of health care to do that. So bottom line is, I I think privacy, you know, your bank accounts, anything can get hacked. Quite frankly, um, and I think your health and for sure, we'll do everything we can to keep it private. To, but but I think it's you know it's not as big a deal as people make it to be. 
I want to talk about you now, Professor Snyder, because okay. it's, it's been said that there is you know, no human in history has collected and recorded as much data about themselves as you have. And I want to know, from my own personal point of view, what lifestyle interventions have you seen have the biggest, both positive and negative impact on your health? Because this is this is real time, real world information that can make us healthier, right? And, and you're living it. What are those big, the big pluses and the big minuses that you've seen in your own health? Yeah, well, the two biggies for me uh, were uh, my genome predicted my risk for type 2 diabetes, which in fact I did get as we were doing these profiles. Now, maybe backing up a little bit, we're doing very, very deep data dives on me and these 109 people uh, in part as a research study. I don't know what data are going to be most valuable. I don't know. We we kind of came in with an open you know, book. Let's just see. Let's just look around and see which of these technologies, you know, how easy are they to implement? What can we learn from them? And so so we do very, very deep profiling on folks every three months um, with the wearables continuously, I suppose. Um, and, and from this kind of study, we discovered, yeah, again, my risk for diabetes for my genome sequence. And then as a profile, I saw I got this after this nasty viral infection, which, by the way, has now turned out to be common for COVID, uh, that 2 to 4% of people get COVID get it's not clear whether it's always type 1 or type 2 diabetes. It's not always sorted out. But the point is they do get diabetes after COVID. I'm actually the first example of that for type 2. So um, anyway, this is the kind of thing that was discovered and I could get it managed. So I changed my lifestyle. You see cakes, all this, because I didn't know I was at risk. If you look at me, I'm not that overweight, not overweight at all, actually. So I, um, yeah, so I totally changed my diet. I don't eat sugars anymore. You may or may not know, but we um, eat in the U.S., I think it's true in the U.K., 40,000 times more sugar than we did at the end of World War II, 40,000. So it's like it's just a total different world now, and that's why people are, quite frankly, obese and diabetic. So in my case, though, I cut it after I discovered this. I also you know, doubled my biking and started running, and that's what brought it under control. So, so certainly exercise is a big one <clears throat> for me. I'm very careful. Uh, also, about what I eat, I eat I'm pretty low carb, uh, high protein, <laughs> um, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty careful, and I and um, and I watch this stuff. Like I said, with my wearables, I caught my infectious disease, so I follow that pretty closely. Um, and right now, it's kind of clunky, but I know we can build a system. We already are with some of the companies I'm in with my lab trying to pull data in so that at the end you can have it all on your simple smartphone here and be able to, you know, this can become your most most important health instrument. It's not going to replace doctors. What's going to do, it's going to augment your healthcare. It'll be tracking you so that you can, yeah, basically share it with your physician. And a good example, a lot of physicians probably rambling on a bit here, but a lot of physicians um, will um, say, well, these wearables are not very accurate. Well, it turns out they're more accurate than what you're measuring in a doctor's office. If you pull your resting heart rate off first thing in the morning, it's a really good indicator of your health. And if it's up, you're either stressed or something, you know, something's up. <laughs> it's pretty simple like that. It's way better than temperature. Temperature is a 300-year-old concept. Speaking of exercise, it's often been said, you know, the danger of looking at data in isolation, if you looked at somebody undergoing a marathon or a heavy deadlifting session, all of their biometric markers would essentially, you'd think they were dying, right? High high pulse, 
high blood pressure, all these other symptoms that wouldn't suggest health at all. It's obviously then only after when you recover, all of those markers improve. Have you seen that exercise is by far the biggest positive influence on someone's health, given that you said that you're cycling and through running? Can you just sit there and just see the data improve over time? What, yeah, but I mean, not, but not, you're right. And after what we say, an acute bout of exercise, if you run a marathon, if you run exercise, sure, your heart rate's up, all that stuff. But there's no question, and we've seen in our studies for people who are, you know, before, if they haven't been exercising very much, they're resting heart rates at a certain level. And then after they go through some training programs and things, they're, they're best, basically, their resting heart rate usually comes down lower. So, but again, but not right after the exercise because you've elevated. That's what you're supposed to do, elevate this. Now, I myself have actually switched from a running to weightlifting, believe it or not. Uh, and that's been a big lifestyle. And I did it for my diabetes because uh, I was running about as much as I could, and yet my sugar kept creeping up. And so I shifted to weightlifting. And there the idea was that muscle mass was better for glucose control. And there are reasons for thinking that. That didn't work for me, actually. I kept creeping up anyway, but I kept it up for a variety of reasons. One, it's good for my posture. It did increase my muscle mass. I do whole body MRI. I gained 10 pounds of muscle mass. And I think it has a lot of positive benefits anyway. And so I'm a big believer in strength training or resistance training. Uh, 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 most people tell you do a good combo of cardio plus strength training. Because uh, you may know as you get older, sarcopenia is a big, big problem as people get old. And once people lose mobility, their health plummets. So I think keeping, that's the, it's really important to stay active. And a lot of people, you know, they look at an 80-year-old grandmother and say, oh, no, take it easy, sit down there. That's the opposite of what they should be doing. They should be walking around and moving because, again, keeping mobile, keeping your your strength up is, is critical for your health. So um, so that's why I still uh, lift weights and I exercise every single day. Um and people will make up these numbers. I just saw another one. They're all over the map. Where oh, you need you know forty five minutes of exercise a week, and someone else say, well, you need an hour and a half. The reality is, we don't know what the right combo is. Uh, so for me personally, I'm, I'm I'm pretty convinced that as I say, this strength or resistance training together with a bit of cardio is probably a good thing, and I do it every day. Your research is shown with continuous glucose monitors that different people can have different blood glucose responses to the same food, which again, I think we're so kind of led to believe that this food is going to have this impact and this food with this macros is going to have this impact. And you've spoken before about kind of serious spikers, people who have very elevated blood glucose response to to foods that maybe wouldn't have an impact on, on others. Why do you, why, what is the reason behind these so-called super spikers? Is it purely gut microbiome? Are there other genetic factors at play? Or ultimately, do we not know? And I guess my follow-up question would be, how does this new information about how different people respond to the same foods, how's that going to help inform some of our tactics and strategies to combat metabolic disease, diabetes, other things we've mentioned? Yeah, great question. So backing up a little bit. So we, uh, one of the things we discovered is that when these glucose monitors first came out, they're being used for type 1 and insulin-dependent type 2 diabetics to help them control their glucose better. What we did was we took these and started putting them on so-called normal healthy people and pre-diabetics. And we discovered that many of them were spiking their glucose badly, even normal people by uh, normal by fasting glucose, something called hemoglobin A1C. 
had their glucose levels spike pretty dramatically, as bad as diabetics. And so we think they can actually capture information that's sometimes hard to measure by traditional means like hemoglobin A1C and other other things. And so it, they, they clearly have glucose dysregulation. And as you said, they spike to different foods. Now, we don't fully understand what's causing that. There's no question the microbiome is part of that. And, and there's one study that says that 21% of that spiking, if you will, is due to the microbiome. It's probably other factors as well, your immune system, other things. And it's one thing we're working on the research side to try and understand that precisely. So if I could measure you and your microbiome, I'd be able to say, aha, you're this kind of a spiker. You spike to bananas and someone else, we measure them and say, aha, they're going to spike to potatoes. We're not there yet. We don't know. So right now it's all empirical, but you can get there because you just put these glucose monitors on. They measure your glucose every five minutes and you can see exactly what foods spike you and and so empirically you can basically um you know avoid those and eat the ones that don't and then as i say there's now some ai recommendation pro based programs that are very personalized uh january ai has as i say 32 million food database they will go in and and from four days of training and knowing what spikes you and what doesn't spike you they'll they'll give you a food recommendation well you do you know, if this one spikes you, eat this instead, and that should not spike you. It's quite accurate, actually. And there's other behavioral modifications that you can do that there as well. You Again, uh, we'll see if the listeners know, but if you, um, you know, if you just walk, do a brisk walk after eating, you actually suppress your spikes. One of the things we teach you in the program, which is you, you, we tell you, eat your favorite food in the morning. Then next day, eat your favorite food and do a 15, 20 minute walk. And you'll see your spike is way, way lower. So I know it sounds obvious, but when you see it visually, it's pretty powerful for motivating you to, you know, modify your behavior. And then um, the other thing, there's a lot of basics that people don't realize as well, which is you shouldn't eat for three hours before you go to bed. Also take a walk before you go to bed. These all improve your glucose control. And I think as we, so there are, you know, behavior modification programs that try to get to people. I think the more we can show them this visually, the more, uh, like you were saying, if you can show people we're tracking them, they're improving. We think that that'll be very, very powerful as a behavioral <laughs> modification. Is it uh, Matt? Case there's certain foods, um, and you've mentioned before, kind of breakfast cereal and milk that will absolutely send everyone's blood glucose through through the roof. And actually, we're yeah. maybe feeding ourselves and our kids probably one of the, the the least healthy breakfast is, is have i understood that right it, it really cornflakes and milk one of the worst things we can do to ourselves it is 80 percent of people spike to cornflakes and milk i think it's like poisoned <laughs> so, so, there should be warning to... labels on that stuff yeah and i'm sure these products it's, are... clearly, it's clearly a massive massive problem because if you're getting that level of a, sp a spike and, and you're saying it, it's poison i mean I don't want to put words into your mouth, but can we equate this to any other kind of negative lifestyle behavior that it's as bad as? Uh, well, maybe not moving around at all. So lack of exercise, people spending all day in front of their screens probably isn't good either. Uh, yeah, no, I would agree that this is a huge problem. Now, it may be they're not spiking when they're that little, right? As kids, we don't know, although there are plenty of kids that are now getting pretty obese, and there's a good chance that, in fact, we know already some of them are spiking. So, uh, but I worry that it's creating glucose dysregulation problems that will make them bad later. Now, we know it's true for adults. 80, like you say, 80% of people who eat cornflakes and milk will 
spiked through the roof. Uh, and so presumably, may, again, maybe that better glucose control so on their kids, but it's you're you're pushing them down a bad path. Uh, and so I think, and as yeah, we should be getting people to eat what you know well early. And quite frankly, I think a lot of the stuff probably starts in utero it, from pregnant women that they should be careful about what they eat too, because we know that's a very heavily uh, important time for influencing the health of the, you know the unborn fetus. So, yeah. and I've heard you say before that. Cornflakes and milk—it's almost as bad for your health as smoking. Was was that tongue in cheek, or do you? It, it, it was tongue in cheek, but it's got to be. Just th- think about it. Like nine percent of the U.S. is diabetic, thirty-three percent pre-diabetic. That's just those are horrific numbers. And the worst part is they're getting worse. This is not getting better. It's only going to get worse. So uh, we've got to do something to get it under control. And and I like the smoking. You know, there was a time when it was very cool to smoke. Right, a lot of population smoked and. I, I just think, uh, obviously, that was a very successful campaign to get rid of it. Uh, a variety of things helped make that all happen. And I think we need the same kind of campaign around, you know, sugar and, and yeah, getting people to control their glucose and their eating habits. Your lab has found that changes in the gut microbiome can be an early indicator of both physical and, and mel- mental disease and illness. How excited are you by some of these breakthroughs, not only in terms of uh, preventing you know, common physical conditions such as cancer, but also, I guess, bigger picture, tackling some of the mental issues we have around untreatable disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. There's more and more evidence that the gut plays a huge part in some of these conditions. How excited are you by what we can do in terms of identifying some of these changes and then more importantly, finding solutions so we can treat some of these currently untreatable diseases? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a very excited. Now, in fairness, that's not our lab that showed that. But um, but it, I, I followed the field. It's very exciting. There's no question. This It's called the gut-brain axis is a big deal that what you eat definitely affects your mental health and, and your microbiome is important part of that. So backing up a little bit, your microbiome, uh, you know, it digests your food, which is a big deal, but it makes important compounds. Uh, your Some of your vitamins, B12, things like this are mostly made by your gut. And and so it's very, very critical for your health. And, and as are certain, you know, um, serotonin, things like this are all produced from your gut. So it's really, really important that you have good gut health. And most of us don't. And a good example is, uh, I should back up, a little bit of what feeds your microbiome is fiber, believe it or not. And what it's recommended is that women eat 25 grams of fiber a day, men 35 at least. And the average turns out to be about 10 to 12 grams people eat. <laughs> We're not even close. So we do need, and, and you need that to feed your microbiome. And if you don't, actually your microbiome, believe it or not, attacks your your mucosal layers in your intestines, in your large intestine. And and so we'll have good gut health and that will actually help your brain health because some of these important neurotransmitters that are made from your gut, you know, we think it, it, this is an area that still needs a, you know more to study, but uh, there's definitely lots of relationships between, you know, gut health and 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 there's some very nice studies around autism and, and one of the latest most exciting areas something called bipolar where uh, people with bipolar um, uh, conditions will 
it, it, if they do a ketogenic diet, they can actually control it. It's amazing. And so it's a classic case and it's presumably affecting all these, you know, neurotransmitter. And, and we know a lot of them, we're still learning a lot. I just, there, someone at Stanford just discovered a whole new molecule that probably affects brain health and, and appetite, uh, um, how much you eat, uh, appetite suppression it's called. So anyway, we, we, I think there's probably still a lot more to be discovered out there, but there's no question there's a relationship. And so eating properly, we think is, is important. Uh, you know, there's a lot of simple things you should be doing now. Um, you know, take, uh, make sure you have plenty of fiber. Uh, I personally do a lot of antioxidants and anti-inflammatories as supplements and, and my mega threes, you know, this sort of stuff for brain health. So, uh, I'd say that, you know, this is, we don't, it's still early days though. We don't know all these things. And some of the stuff that's out there, in my opinion, is snake oil, um, that people advertise. There's no evidence that it works or doesn't work. So knowing what's good from what's bad just needs to get all sorted out too. I, I like to say the things that we do the most are, are pretty routine, like sleep, nutrition, exercise. We don't exactly know how they work in, ter- in molecular terms, the kinds of things we study, but we're learning more and, and at least we're learning certain things and, and certain things about the timing of these that are very, very important. A recent addition to your battery of testing that you do on a daily basis, I understand, is, is a pollution monitor that you carry around that, that tracks the pollution and the other environmental toxins to which you're, you're exposed. Can you give me an update on what you're finding there and what impact you're simply breathing and being in the environments you're in is having on your health? Because I think a lot of people will be very interested in how they can maybe take some of that knowledge away and improve their own circumstances. Yeah, this is very early days. This is our latest exposometer. So it measures something called PM2.5. These are particulates that can get down into your lungs. It also measures something called PM10, a little bit bigger things. And we've engineered it in a way that it can it captures all your particulates and under that captures all the chemicals. We have chemical absorbent. And then it's not real time yet. We have to measure back in the lab, but you can there's a cartridge you take and and we'll measure, uh, yeah, what those what the particulates you're, you're breathing are. So if you think about now, you don't know what you're breathing. You could be breathing good stuff. You could be bad stuff. Who knows? Nobody knows. Uh, and so we we did this. We we profiled me, but we also profiled some other people. And then we did analyze it later and um, discovered all kinds of cool stuff. So a good example is that I have mild allergies. They used to be more severe, but they're pretty mild. Um, and they come every, you know, April, May. And I always assumed it was pine. But when we actually measured this, it turns out it correlates much, much better with eucalyptus. And in hindsight, I probably should have figured it out because I don't get them so much on the East Coast where there aren't eucalyptus trees. So, yeah, I probably should have figured it out. But anyway, um, yeah. And, and so it's kind of nice to know that. Um, now, there we can discover also relationships between certain things. So for example, there's a chemical called pyridine that's found in paints. And wherever we have find detect pyridine with this exposometer, there's less fungi, less black mold, if you will. So actually my house, I get a fungal exposure and it's fine because I don't, I'm not allergic to molds. But imagine if I was allergic to molds, well, maybe I want my house painted with this pyridine paint so that actually it would keep it down. So these are the kinds of things you can discover. On the chemical side, we discover a lot of surprise. We discover this chemical called DEET, 
which is used in in things to keep insects off you. And yeah, you may have heard about this. It it turns out we find that everywhere. I didn't expect that. Uh, But the the amounts vary from from one location to another. We find carcinogens everywhere. Same thing. Your location is the number one factor driving what chemical and biological exposures you do. Weather has a big effect too, actually, turns out. Um, So anyway, we think it's kind of nice to know these things because if they are high in certain areas, uh, you, you know, you might want to reduce your exposure to those things. An area we don't know very well is what kinds of good things are out there that would improve your health. That's an area we're working hard on now in the lab. But we, we are at least detecting the bad things. We can correlate it like with our inflammation response, things like this. It would be know. fascinating when you do turn the attention to the, the, the positives, right? Because I think everyone does focus on all the, the bad and the nasty things in the air. But, you know, a day at the beach or a day in the forest and you, you do feel rejuvenated. And I think a lot of people probably think that's just from the visual stimulation. But is there just good stuff in the air that is, is We helping? think so, but we don't know, right? It's totally unknown. And that's something we're working on now to see the good stuff. What's your, what's your expectation? Do you think we're going to find good stuff or is it just going to be the best? Yeah, because, you know, humans, we evolved in a in a whole ecosystem uh, with forests and, and all kinds of stuff around us. We're not just like our microbial system has evolved with us as humans on the inside. Humans have evolved with an ecosystem on the outside and there's got to be a good, you know, a good thing, bad thing relationship out there. And so the idea would be to find the good things. We're, we're working hard on that now. You're the founder of January AI and, and other consumer-facing technology companies aimed at you know, providing personal healthcare, personal recommendations. What are some of the biggest misunderstandings or misconceptions that you find individuals have when it comes to understanding personal healthcare? Are there any common themes or you know, ish, communication issues you need to get over an individual before they kind of buy in and understand the concept and, and what you're trying to help them achieve? Uh, yeah, I, I think how you return the data is a big deal back to folks. So I do think getting this right, uh, is something we're still working on, uh, to try and get it right, I would say. Um, and also you, you always have to remember who you're returning the data to. So when you return the data, sometimes you'll show it to the physicians and physicians have a very different viewpoint than the direct to consumer. So, um, we try to actually have reports for different people when we're doing some of those stuff. So the report for the consumer should be very simple, should be very obvious, it should be easy to be self-taught. The report for the physician can make, you know, enable them to make recommendations perhaps uh, about the, you know, what they could do with their patient. Uh, yeah, so we have to watch it a little bit because we're not trying to make medical recommendations. We're trying to improve wellness. Uh, so there is a lot of regulatory control in this space that, you know, we want to make sure we're we're compliant with and, and aware of. But at the same time, we want to bring wellness to everyone. So we do want to, you know, have people be able to do simple tests. Wearables are a good example. Uh, you know, we're we're not allowed to say you're getting an infection, we're, but we're allowed to tell you when your heart rate's jumping up. <laughs> so you catch a difference there, and and yeah, so so. This is what we're we're trying to do, and we are trying. These most of these are research studies, by the way. They're not FDA approved. None of the stuffs FDA approved tests, but that's where we want to ultimately take it. Uh, so we have to, you know, show we can do these things in a research setting. Show they have utility, 
And then the idea would be to scale them. Um, and I, I think it's going to take good visualization tools. If you if you see what QBio has done for how they return data back, uh, health data, it's just amazing. It's very, very clear. Uh, whereas if you look at how we do it now in the healthcare system, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but it, it's gobbledygook. They give you a list of you know, calcium, all these scores. That it's like nobody's going to know what to do with that if you're an average consumer. Uh, but you could organize this, display it in a fashion that both you and a, and a physician could, you know, look, here's your cardiovascular markers and here's what they look like. Here are these markers. Here's what they look like. We, we can just reorganize the way we, we, you know, manage people's health. I think another way to think about this is like your car. Uh, I've used this analogy a lot where, you know, we have a lot of sensors on our car. They relay, they relay information through a dashboard that's, you know, pretty simple that we all can understand that we can all work with. That's what we need for health. We need, we should have sensors on us all the time, getting measured, getting checked up frequently, again, in a convenient fashion so that you will do it. And then we relay the information back on this dashboard that, you know, basically makes it simple for you to, without, and fairly passively, ideally, where you just would see this stuff and say, yep, okay, things are good. Oh, wait a minute, that thing looks off. And in, in the long run, we could have an automatic recommendation system. Well, those things looks off. You know, you better eat more of this or less of that. Like if your inflammation markers are, well, maybe start eating a little more garlic or anti-inflammatory things, this kind of stuff. So so I think we can get there. Uh, that's where I want to be in the long run. But I think we can make big steps even now. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball, Professor Snyder. What does the world of medicine and healthcare look like in 10, 15 years' time? We've talked about personalized medicine and some of the breakthroughs, some of the obstacles, some of the blockers. If your perfect utopian vision of the future could could be realized, what does it look like? Well, I think people get their genome sequenced before they're born. Obviously, a little late for us. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, and then you would get you would do a certain kind of health monitoring at home where people would be wearing either wearable and implantable that's measuring basic things all the time, like the glucose, cortisol, some other markers, cortisol is a stress marker, your resting heart rate, all these things. So you'd have these trackers and you're just running in the background, right? So you're not thinking about them, but they would alert you if something goes off on your smartphone or wherever, might be on your TV, whatever. Uh, and then I think you would be, you know, pricking yourself that part and getting a certain number of key measurements, maybe once a week, maybe others that you do like um, with these pricks where you mail them in uh, when they do a deeper dive on you, <laughs> that one maybe is once a month, but then you'd be tracking these things pretty regularly like liver enzymes. It's like, again, doing a whole body checkup and then certain other things like whole body MRIs, they're too big, those instruments. You're not going to have one of those in your home. But, uh, you know, they could be at your supermarket, your grocery store, uh, your drugstore, wherever, where maybe you do that twice a year, maybe more. So that's my ideal world that certain specialized interests, uh, things like the MRIs are done, again, in a very specialized environment. Most stuff could be done either sampled at home or measured at home and other things just measured 24-7. And how likely is that reality going to be? Do you, how confident do you feel that this is the world that we're all going to be living in? Well, I think part of, unfortunately, you raised the issue earlier about inequities. And 
and of course, my ideal world would be everybody, but um, it'll probably hit the the wealthier first because they can afford it because we pay out of pocket. And then I hope that we can get certain things like the the wearables and continuous monitoring again, glucose control stuff out earlier. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see everyone have it. It won't happen within five years. That would be <laughs> a good, that'd be a great goal to have. I mean, we have moonshots, but people on the moon in 10 years, we should have moonshots to keep people healthy, some basic level of health monitoring in 10 years. I think that would be a nice goal to have. And then the more detailed stuff will take longer. But I think, again, as we demonstrate utility, maybe we can we can get there sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive Unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.